Hello, welcome back to Judge Movie with me, Judge Movie Ben Flanagan, the movie judge, who judges movies based on whether or not they've committed crimes against cinema. But today, we're out of the courthouse and we're in Rotterdam. We're in uh, freezing cold Netherlands near The Hague, sandwiched in between The Hague and uh, Amsterdam, the city of of uh, red lights and uh, red bridges. Red bridges. Um is Rodham IFFR, and uh, I'm joined today by a fellow critic. Hi, I'm Paul Farrell. I'm also at IFFR. I'm here writing for Vague Visages. Um, I've been having fun so far. It's been good. Yeah, we've been we've been staying in a we've been staying on a boat, um, which is kind of it's it's been like thematic. It's been it's been well. Let's paint the scene uh, for this morning. So we're here, it's, it's Friday morning of the festival, so today we're going to watch High uh, Life. I was about to say High Rise. Uh, yeah, we're going to watch High Rise. High Rise, the, the Ben Wheatley film. But, so we're very excited, but it's also, it's very, very cold today. It's like some of the coldest, like the coldest day of the festival. And being in this boat, we're also kind of underground, in a sense. Yeah. So we're here in this bunker that's full of cheese and meat that Ben bought last night. It's uh, feeling cheesy, feeling meaty. So we thought this is a sort of a height of our powers, Let's record the podcast. Yeah, it's time. Well, there's, there's so much to talk about. Um, festivals spread over the whole city, and uh, it's a lot of emerging filmmakers, a lot of films from the festival scene that have been big over the last year, mm. and there's also lots of classic films and uh, re-releases, restorations, um, as well as art stuff. Art Some installation works, yeah. Uh, the best experience and the best like movie maybe that I've had and it's really weird because when we got here, we came here by a 10-hour coach, more or less, and it was um, quite grueling, like more so than I would have thought. I'm not going to complain. It's like, wow, we got here very cheaply. <laughs> uh, but we got here and we were knackered. And in one of the first days, I kept falling asleep during screenings. And my favourite film, maybe because I kept falling asleep in it, just because it added to the surreal quality of it, was Long Day's Journey Into Night, the Began film. Which is kind of the perfect movie to fall asleep to. It really is. Well, the thing is, because it's famously got a 40-minute one-take shot at the end, I did sort of, with my body, like, edited that scene because I kept, like, falling in and out of sleep. But it was incredible, absolutely yeah. incredible. And the thing is, it's the idea that you can fall asleep and come back to these images, these standalone images and moments that I'm sure thematically are even more engrossing when you see the whole thing. But I, I would just wake up, be amazed, and then fall <laughs> and back to sleep. Back up again, yeah. Uh, well, it's that kind of, you know, those two halves of the film are uh, both kind of use dream logic in different ways. Um, one being this kind of very elliptical art um, art film for the first sort of hour and a half, mm. um, which does kind of take on this sort of dreamlike quality. But then when you're in an actual dream sequence, it's like maybe that's more real so in called, a way. It's yeah, so yeah, called dream sequence. Well, we talked about sort of... in the plot that really kind of... Mm. confirms that either way, do you know? We talked about sort of like how the dream logic of it worked in the sense that a lot of people... It seems to be consensus that that is you're entering a dream when you go into this... So to, to give a little background, Long Day Journey into Night, um, famously at this point now, that whole one take for 40 minutes is in 3D as well, um, which a disclaimer at the beginning of the film says this is not a 3D film, but when the character puts on his 3D glasses, follow suit, which happens. And when it does... Everything goes black, everything goes dark. And there's an amazing feeling in the cinema as 200 people put on their glasses. Yeah. Is, yeah. After when they all got in there, pre-opening the little like plastic wrapper yeah. just to be like, oh, I don't want to make noise later. So you get sort of an hour and a half of this uh, very cool, like neo-noir, mm. uh, almost vertigo kind of storyline. Yeah. Um, 
and then the main character falls asleep and uh yeah in the cinema yeah and you get this, this but you get this whole shot. one shot and we talked about sort of how it, in dreams how you can cut from different places how perhaps there's more of a cinematic quality to dreams in the sense that reality sort of bends around them and that it jumps from place to place it's a lot more sort of intuitive and yet in this so-called dream sequence it's probably the most sort of realist yeah. sort of thing that happens even though there are sort of these um mystical things that happen mm-hmm. within it but they all happen within one sort of very sort of clear uh path for this character yeah, you know yeah. a to b to etc etc and there's this kind of element of within the story space that that um 3d shot comes just as as you're about to reach the climax of the first sort of storyline and so it because it pays off ideas from the first half in a very idealized very kind of romantic way you're kind of left um you know you're left satisfied but also there's this kind of disconnect mm. because it's because you're it's not real but then is this the kind of life you want to lead or the life mm, yeah. you know, don't live in your dreams too much <laughs> that, that kind of thing but it I don't know, it works. It's just so such a bombastic movie. That it, it is incredible. The soundtrack to it actually yeah. is the oh, thing that really ca- yeah. caught me. Um, during the, the the forty minute take, there is a sequence that's um, what you call them uh, ski lift. Yeah, yeah. So our character goes on a ski lift just to get from one location to the next, just to entirely change. But it's the very set. durational. Like... It's very durational, but it is this incredible swelling of like because there's lots of moments of like flight and of just like leaving your body and all this sort of stuff. And it was it's it's incredibly like ecstatic in the way it feels like it's trying to lift you out of your own cinema seat with this character. That's a film that's been on the festival circuit. Indeed. That premiered at Cannes. Uh, I saw it first at London Film Festival. So it's it's kind of been around. Um I don't know what sort of life it's going to have beyond the festivals. I think mm-hmm. it be, would be great in uh, like a bigger UK release. I think. It well, be, it's it's been a it's great niche, but it's got a kind of participatory know, element to it, though. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. you you really have a sense of yourself sitting there and watching it because, I mean, for anyone who hasn't seen it, they'll be like, okay, when's the 3D coming up, sort yeah. of thing. Uh, people already know it will be able to like look back. And as you say, like in that in the dream sequence, there are ideas and images. Um, that are scattered throughout mm-hmm. the first hour and a half yeah. version. So it's almost like cherry-picking sort of what's been going on in this guy's life for last whatever. So there's a lot of kind of interaction that an audience can have with it. But I think a lot of films that we've seen on the festival circuit, we have worries about in that sort of sense. And yeah. we've been doing a little bit of a trade because a lot of films that we saw at LFF that the other person hadn't seen, we've been swapping them around. So if you'd like to talk a bit about... Um, Diamantino. Yeah, so Diamantino is the first movie I saw here. I can't remember the director's name. Do you, do you know? Oh, I can't remember, to be honest with you. We'll uh, put it all in the, in the in pod the notes. notes. Yeah, so uh, Diamantino is the story of uh, the eponymous football player. <laughs> what, a, what a hard flex on eponymous. <laughs> it's like cringe so, to say so, it. Sorry, I'm just going to get my vocab out. saying Diamantino. So uh, Diamantino is this like amazing football player. I kind of read him as a stand-in for Cristiano Ronaldo, maybe because the film's Portuguese. I, I kind of felt like that was there. I think that was that was that, that was the decision. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, he uh, he sees uh, giant puppies every time he plays football because he's in such a zen state. Uh, but after a big mishap, he kind of ends up disgraced, uh, adopting a refugee boy who's actually a secret agent uh, who's a lesbian. Um, and uh, there's kind of adventures from there, and it's just mm. this mad, like, 
Uh, I described it as uh, Mr. Bean wins the World Cup. I think it's got this sort of kids' comedy movies. Like, it's, it's yeah. got the structure of that, or like the Richard Lester Beatles films. Mm. It's just like style, and like you can just kind of switch up a genre between scenes and between moments, and it's just, I don't know, it makes all these points about populism and football culture. And celebrity. And celebrity. But it's never like, never like trying to, I don't know, not, not trying to like change your mind. It's not a didactic film. It's just, it's kind of all there in this melange of like modern, modern things. Yeah, there's no like kind of uh, messaging happening all the way through. And the fact that you mentioned um, the police officer also being a lesbian is another big, great thing about Diamantino. Um, it, it's probably one of the unsung queer films that's come out of recent yeah. years, I think. It's also one of the most intelligent films to think about the refugee crisis today as well as how we kind of like perceive it from within sort of uh, countries, say like Portugal or the UK. And in fact, in the UK, this is a film I think that should be seen because it's it's got such a great sort of like strand about nationalism, about closing off borders mm-hmm. and about sort of like rejecting a more um, optimistic or idealised approach to taking in people and to wanting to help, even though Diamantino himself is an idiot who... Even though he's in amazing shape, the guy looks incredible. Uh, his diet consists of Nutella and Umbongo. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's what I really like about it. And I think in the UK, it'd be a vital film to watch. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I I agree, but I I don't know that the that it kind of it, the refugee crisis is seen from his perspective mm. all the time. It doesn't really like it doesn't go into it no, too true. much. That's like. Um, for me to say that it's one of the best films about refugee crisis in, okay. in the last few years. I just think that's part of a wider system within the film that, that it feeds into yeah. all of the stuff that's going on. I think um, it uses it to talk about populism um, and nationalism really well. And that's obviously the, the very linked kind of subjects, especially in Britain. So I'm not, I'm not trying to like... No, 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 the it's, point. no I just, it's fine. I just don't know that I, I see it as like saying much about refugees mm. and or maybe it's not trying to that's the thing i don't think when i say that it's not necessarily that i think it, you're going to come away with the most about it it's not kapanau no, exactly yeah it's not kapanau which is the audience favorite at the moment uh at the festival but i think in the, when i say like it's one of the better ones that i've seen about the refugee crisis it, it's in the sense that it has sort of like taking it as part of this swirling narrative that's around yeah. this character and someone who you know progressively gets more and more sort of connected to wider themes in the world, even though he doesn't understand any of them because he is just this savant. As well as the refugee crisis, you also have like the genderqueer narrative that goes through it that he's kind of swept away up into. But it's just being able to engage in that with someone who's seeing it from a completely sort of fresh perspective. I think that's yeah. what I find so ingratiating about it when he's tackling these kind of mm-hmm. like topics. Yeah. And that's what I'm getting at. Certainly compared to, have you seen the Michelle Haneke's um, Happy End? from a few years ago I haven't you know it's like it's a similar film where it's like let's just take apart all of modern society through all of these different kind of bits and bobs and yeah the refugee crisis is like there it's in the background mm-hmm. um, and, and that also doesn't really say anything about it but that may be because it, it, it doesn't tie to anything the refugee crisis is um, I, I mean let's not talk too much about happy end but it's okay, right it's now, okay, but, it's but, okay. but I think Diamantino is a lot more successful mm. in in kind of talking about modern Europe and modern times. I think, yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's it's great. I, I, do you think it was just going to hit VOD or something? It probably I, is, yeah. it, which is a shame because it is like um, I can see it, it popping it, up on movie for sure. Yeah, I mean, it has a very sort of high sort of digital 
digitized sort of aesthetic to it it's very yes. like sheen like very um almost animated in a sense yeah. like there's something there's so much of it just pops you know i watched it on the imax screen and it wow. was just insane you know the grain of those blown up images and yeah yeah really not to be the guy that's like, green, but... Green. Yeah, but it, 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 it has such a like, particular insane. texture, though, doesn't it? It's, yeah. it, and it? I would love to see it on, like, UK screens, but it does seem like it's going to be more of a VOD job. Yeah, I mean, I saw it in a packed house, and everyone loved it, but I feel like 500 Dutch people, like, laughing to this kind of European comedy might be different to how it goes down in the UK, but... Possibly, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, another one... find the right kind of audience for it. I was going to say, like, talking about movies finding their way to the theatres. I mean, one film that's been playing since Locarno last year in August that you recently saw, and I saw at LFF, uh, was Ray and Liz. Yes. Which is an incredible film, incredible British film, and it's not had its UK release just yet. It's had a few preview screenings uh, yeah. that's been touring around. That's uh, Richard Billingham's kind of uh, cinematic memoir, I guess you'd call it. Uh, that's coming out in the UK in March the 8th, I think, or, Mar- or late March. Um, so that is that is coming. I think they've just kind of been biding their time with that. Mm. You know, same as like, it's a similar release to like Beast. Yes, year, yeah. That kind of thing. I mean, I think it's playing Glasgow Film Festival before anything. Right. Like, I think it's like, that's like late February. But this is an absolutely essential British movie, I think, for, you know, what, just what a little gem. It's um, incredible, yeah. Yeah, so so it's it's this guy, uh, he's a photographer, and he's gone back to his... Uh, this is the director, the like, director, this isn't within yeah, the Yeah, not film. within the story. Yeah. He's gone back to the flat in the black country where he grew up and he kind of tells you a few stories about life with his uh sort of madcap parents ray and liz um ray's this sort of ineffectual he almost dissolves into the movie he's like barely present and then liz is this force of nature um played by uh, ella smith in one of the best performances i've seen here for sure Mm. um she's just this kind of um I don't know, just such a force of nature who is, I don't know, she affects everyone on screen. The, yeah. the air, like, sucks out of the room when she walks in and stuff. It's, yeah. She's an incredibly proud sort of character. She is, yeah. And that informs a lot of her sort of, um, her anger and her sort of uh, defensiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just these little episodes. I think there's three different episodes. No, there's only two. Oh, there's only two? Yeah. Oh, right. Um, so there's two episodes that are just, like, dip into sort of Ray's earlier life because the frame of the narrative is, is Ray um, elderly and alone within the flat. Um, he's become an alcoholic and he's just sort of like seeging through his memories yeah. of his time in the flat. And it, But it, it has this kind of style that, well, it's definitely indebted to, to like Terence Davies and Bill Douglas. Mm. Um, but it's, um, I don't know, I like that it, it wasn't trying to be too political. It wasn't trying to uh, you know, ram the kind of Thatcher context down your throat, even though that is something that's that's present in the story. Obviously, they're living below the poverty line, um, but it's actually more about like the the what the stuff of memories are, the like objects yeah. that are there, the kind of tactile feeling of it, the mad art on the walls, and how that kind of interacts with the things that the actors do. Well, you um, talked about uh, like the little piece of um, tissue that was folded. Yeah, yeah, I was I was obsessed with this one shot. Where in the background you can just see like a crumpled, um, like a squashed uh, kitchen roll, because that was just so real. Like I see squashed kitchen rolls in my life. <laughs> I see them. That's me. Um, yeah, I'm the movie. That was me finally being represented on screen with squashed kitchen roll. But um, I don't know. That just spoke to a level of production design that was really uh, just so authentic. Um, you know, if, the, if that had been made in a studio lot. 
Oh, no. In Hollywood, do you know what I mean? Just be a kitchen roll there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's great. What, what, what did you think about it from LFF? Um, well, I'd, I'd say it's more political, politically minded, I, I, in the sense that I think, as you say, it makes very overt, not overt references, but it shows the causality of sort of like Thatcher era politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you say, I agree in the sense that it doesn't wear itself as a period piece. Yeah. I don't think, even though it has such details and has such sort of like particular context it doesn't wear itself as like, oh, this was the year, you know, because it's very vague that, about that's that. That's what I'm saying. What it I doesn't mean, yeah. try and say, like, well, it doesn't try and compare what Thatcher did to, like, austerity now yeah, yeah, or anything yeah. like that. It doesn't make those, uh, say, didactic again. Like, it doesn't make those points. Yeah. It's just inferred through context. his truth. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And it's just sort of, and, and the resultant sort of life that they live, it's sort of like, because um, it starts, they're, they're quite, not wealthy, but they're doing flush. They're, they're yes. okay, and yet everything seems to go bad from there. Well, they, he's just been laid off at the start. That is just been laid and off, so yeah. it's, Or they're in a different, they're in a house, later on they're in a They're, they're in a flat, yeah. And that doesn't get, you don't get told that, you just infer it through the geography, and, mm-hmm. and it, it does lay out, you were talking about before about the space, and how you just kind of know where you are, the, the topography of those, the flat and stuff is in those flashback the the, the present day set scenes of Ray and Liz you don't see the kids no um we don't see anyone uh just Ray and then well, see, Liz yeah and, and the, the man um Simon or whatever it is Sid he's like the neighbour isn't he yeah but you never actually see um the ha- kids how the kids turned out yeah. yeah which is an odd one well not necessarily odd I mean because the whole obviously it's framed from this um this man's perspective from Ray's perspective and it's so focused on more intense moments to do with his children because all of the because even though we say like Liz is this force of nature and all that sort of stuff she's very reactant to the plot and what happens and usually it's one of their children who are very varying you've got the, the sweet young boy or the um, horrible older like criminal brother yeah um, and it, they seem to be just reacting to the things that they've done it's almost like putting a weight of responsibility on these children here and there not necessarily like forcing it right on them yeah. but i think maybe that's why because it's, it's it's a notable absence in the later sequence in the the memory like frame scenes um that you don't see the kids and yet all he can sort of like remember about is usually about the kids and even following their stories and their narratives when he wasn't there mm-hmm. so it's, it takes away this idea of memory and it's more inferred he's more like imagining yeah, these sort yeah, of sequences yeah. which i think is quite interesting because as you say, like it becomes so tactile, and yet we can only assume that it's bridged from his imagination in between the moments that he was yeah. around. But but this is another movie that has uh, done the festival circuit. Have mm. you had any discoveries that have either premiered at, uh, here at Rotterdam or that have kind of new to you? Well, that are new to me. Um, oh, uh, one of the first films I saw, and I've actually reviewed it for Vague Visages, if you'd like to check out my review. Uh, it's for a film called Self-Induced Hallucination, which is a documentary uh, uh, mashup, I suppose, or like a uh, playlist, I think is probably a better way to put it, of videos about Slenderman, the meme from like, I don't know, like 2011, something like that. Um, and just basically following the story of how that came to be through clips uh, from YouTube to say like people vlogging about how they saw the Slender Man or like recounting mythology or talking about sort of how he's not real and this is all 10 reasons why sort of thing um and it was amazing really because it, it's so deftly edited um 
because it kind of recreates the experience of sort of logging on, seeing a new meme that everyone seems to be talking about or everyone seems to know a little bit about and just reverse engineers from there. You find out its origins, you find out the kind of language of it. Um, and then that bridges into a wider sort of inspection about the ethics behind sort of internet culture and behind the co-option of like independent mythology that's made on the internet by governments or by capitalists sort of like driven co companies and all this sort of stuff and how that can kind of be sort of like tooled as a weapon which i thought was very interesting very poignant as well in the fact that that's entered modern american politics in particular um this idea of just building up essentially what is a meme and making it a reactionary um re uh, caustic kind of topic and using that as a platform to launch into sort of um what you call it political success yeah i mean there's a there's a big meme in the white house right now am i right that, well that's what am i mean right yeah um I, I haven't seen this yet i'm really looking forward to it's dropping for free on vimeo isn't it, it is after the festival um, so we'll link to that as well um but uh the, the, there's so many youtube found footage movies here mm -hmm. um and they all seem to be kind of unfocused or um you know, they, they make a vague fact about, like, fake news or, like, our reality is shifting. Yeah. And uh, but I think like it's a bit more driven. No, I, I do think it is, because I think when I say it's very deftly edited, I mean, I mean, it's a bit sort of vague me saying that, but I think in the way that it plays with sort of audiences' um, expectations and their own participation, I, I think it leads audiences very, very well, and it knows sort of how people are going to react here and there, because it kind of, it, it, it makes itself... Um, like turn on a dime all the time from the kind of silly like internet sort of fun of just sort of the absurdity of say that there's one clip i remember i really loved it's, it's just this young like preteen kid who's like he's got this sort of fake blood or whatever it is on his lip and he's saying he's got the slender sickness like it's, it's begun and he started to, he's like okay guys guys oh my god i can't believe it i can't believe it and he says this is definitely guys this is not ketchup this is not ketchup guys and it's just all these like horrible reverse shots of just basically ketchup in his sink <laughs> um and that's really fun but from there it, it, it starts to like peel into the real world effects because famously there was a um a stabbing uh, inspired by the slenderman mythology slenderman lloyd slenderman, slenderman. Uh, uh, by the slenderman mythology that had very real world effects and that ended up being a court case. Um, a girl, a, a young girl got um, stabbed near fatally by two of her friends who were afraid that the Slender Man was going to kill them and their family if they didn't sacrifice her. And it became this big um, sort of national case where it was the, it was... Um, the people versus Slender Man. In, in a way, but it's also kind of the people versus... Um, again in many cases is this idea of sort of uh, using the insanity play in a case and it's this idea of just sort of like how much is the influence of the internet really to blame here how much it maybe is its own sort of like tendency towards schizophrenia and that kind of thing and that's where a lot of the more interesting elements come out in the film this tension between reality and uh, internet reality uh, but as i say i don't want to give away too much because <laughs> you can all go watch it i don't even have to you don't have to fly out to rotterdam to, to come watch yeah. it it'll come to you uh, but I think it's really one to check out. It's one of my favourites of the festival. And as you said, there's been a big strand of sort of internet films, but so far the ones that I've seen, that's really been the best. Nice. What about yourself? Any um, new ones that any you've new... been enjoying? You know what? I, I've um, I've kind of been moaning a little bit about this, is I'm not finding... 
I haven't had a sense of discovery in that I'm not. I don't feel like I'm walking into stuff that I have no idea about and coming out feeling uh, satisfied with it. Okay. Um, and that's why I've kind of been sticking more to uh, the. Uh, there's a strand called the spying thing, which is a load of um, re-releases of older movies uh, based around the theme of spying. Um, so there's a lot of stuff in there that's about uh, you know the Cold War, East versus West dynamics, and um, these are like classic movies like those. Uh, Dishonored, the von Stern, Joseph von Sternberg, Martin which we Dietrich both saw. Joint that's just it was so good, yeah. Pure, pure entertainment. Um, it's just a collection of seductions um, delivered by uh, Dietrich, kind of uh, exploring femininity and sexuality in a couple of different ways throughout that movie. Um, and its relation to war as well, I thought was actually absolutely interesting. Kind of Marlene Dietrich sort of. Um... <clears throat> sort of blasé attitude to the whole thing and yet yeah. she's such a deeply sort of nationalist she's a person. nationalist yeah, yeah. yeah. and yet she carries herself all the way through it with this sort of deferring air which is why she I think in the opening um, like like title crawl it was like she could have been the world's greatest spy yeah. if she wasn't a woman and it's this whole sort of von Sternberg attitude that's always in conflict with Dietrich's just undeniable authority yeah. in his movies but, but that kind of carelessness not carelessness but her kind of nonchalance is a theme that, that i've seen in some of these other movies so i saw one two three um which is a billy wilder film from the 60s uh there was ninochka the ernst lubitsch garbo laughs film um and british agents another one i saw michael curtis that that was not quite as good um but they're all about um how the west wins because we don't care. We're capitalist and we like to just indulge ourselves and therefore we're happy. And in the East, people have nothing. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's a kind of, I guess, Hollywood propagandistic way to um, to validate itself. Mm. But it's just, it, it's, it's been really great seeing all those movies in that context together and see that is actually the depiction of East and West. Every time it's, you have three uh, Russian guys who will all, come to the West and, like, love it and lord it up. I've seen that in three movies. <laughs> like, and then eat and fuck as much as they can. Yeah. And then go back and it's... And the sets are all different and, you know... It's, it's just bad times, yeah. Yeah, it's like this cabin. In, in <laughs> Don't even go on about this cabin, guys. But, um, Put it in the show notes, a photo of this cabin. <laughs> I will, I'll, please. Yeah. Um, There's just one really powerful light in here and it makes... It just casts shadows everywhere else. It's so, like, spooky. <laughs> It's horrible. Um, yeah, the, the window is literally looks out to a brick wall. Yeah, it's. Um, look, I'm not. It's. Uh, I'm not going to complain. You yeah, it's fine. Watching the movies. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, if we're doing it right, we're going to be out of here all the time. But to talk about um, like thematic programming, because the other sort of strand of it isn't necessarily just these older sort of like um, pre-code movies. Um, it's also a lot about surveillance as well. It's like two yes, films I saw. I that's think the other aspect. Of that's it. the other thing, yeah. And there was two that I saw. Um, one was called Labas or Down There. That's the Chantal Ackerman 2006 film, yeah. which was literally just um, a, a film diary of her time in Israel visiting. And she's just like all these shots of just looking out into different balconies from her like shuttered windows and her just sort of discussing about her own anxieties, her own feelings. It's very much reminded me of Paul Auster's The New York Trilogy in the sense that it becomes this watching things pass and non-existing to the point where you are literally just living through the images that you see, which I thought was quite interesting. And the way she frames them is very, it's beautiful, really, because she just finds these happenstance moments and yet she grids them in the frame using the shutters, using um, 
these things about this separation of just sort of object and person and sort of interaction with say food is, is very much a big thing in it as well uh, the other one that i saw that's all about surveillance was called images from prison um which just takes apart the idea of just the prison as the filmed image but then goes into surveillance footage within american prisons that was contemporary to the times so this is like 2001 and um a lot about how um the invasion of privacy the idea that you can't have a secret from a guard the idea that you're living your life in a very public way but in a, sh a shut off place where you cannot see out but they can see you um which was fascinating as well not not as, not as much big dietrich energy but you know <laughs> I, I, i've enjoyed yeah. them i'm i'm seeing the ackerman later um but we got to see high high life first. talking of today yeah yes. which we're very excited i mean i don't know if this this has been your sort of like peak for the festival this thing you've been looking forward it's to kind of a, it's the head quote-unquote headliner yeah um and this uh, this is something that we can talk about is uh this this idea of what what is like a festival headliner in mm. terms of film festivals what are, what are the kind of big draws um how that's different from festival to festival you know we talked about um these films that we've discovered from lff or that, that have played other festivals um that seem like kind of smaller hidden away films on that program but here kind of the um equivalent of like the gala screening right so exactly yeah i mean they almost seem i'm talking about populist. I mean, films that we've already talked about like diamantino and long day's journey and tonight yeah and even uh, another one that we saw which you don't have to go into but the uh, knife plus heart yeah especially i think at lff that seemed quite i think used the word ultra right um at the time because we, we talked about a little bit about the difference um between london film festival and uh, Rotterdam, in the sense that it felt more like a showcase like an industry showcase yeah, that's, that's what festival. lff is yeah um whereas here because it's so big and because there's so many different strands i mean th this has been a much bigger festival it's the biggest festival i've been to so far personally that's why do you i think feel. it's bigger than it, yeah i, I mean, do it, think it is especially with the selection as well and the strands are so varied that's the difference yeah i do think it is um you can literally have a completely different festival here yeah. we felt it's so much more like a convention yeah, um, so like you're walking into the convention hall and like seeing his about it and kind of getting introduced to the new crop almost. Yeah, like, what are you here for? You know, yeah. like you're here for something very much in particular yeah. rather than, as I say, it's hard to kind of discover things unless you're going to let yourself completely go on the sort of the flow of it. Because we have had a completely different festival from, say, like the main audience, because we've been seeing whenever you go into the cinema, there's always like a tally list of the, the audience vote. for yeah. what well, the audience the prize. Audience yeah, um, and Cape and Elm is... Um, winning at the moment but so is uh bathtubs over broadway yeah but i mean i, I really enjoyed that but that is a super accessible movie that's can you use stuff like a place like rotterdam as its launch pad mm. as far as like this proves it's got like rt credentials yeah um but that is definitely like a kind of netflix amazon documentary that's about um steve young who was an old uh david letterman writer who has like an obsession with industrial musicals which are musical, like Broadway musicals produced by companies like Xerox and like the Ford Motor Motor Company to, to make musicals about their products. Um, and he just collects them. And then this movie kind of goes into the whole history and it becomes this almost alternate secret history of the US in the late 20th century. Because it's like this uh, way more money was spent on these than has ever been spent in Broadway all these stars come from it and it also it's kind of this glimpse into that um almost the make america great again era of of um 
you know, people having a job for life and industry in America and like, you know, like American dreams or looking after each other. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, then it goes into, um, Flint, Michigan with the GM, um, factory shut down a little bit. I could have had more of that. Um, because by the end you're like, well, maybe he is a mega guy. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's worth checking out. But it, but, um, and you reckon that, that'll definitely be like a VOD one? I think that's up, yeah. definitely, they, they confirmed that already. Um, but but that is the kind of movie that can, if it wins like an audience award here, that's such a good launch pad for a film like that. Mm. That's kind of, yeah, kind of sits in the middle of being, yeah, it's quirky, but it is super, you know, it, it's, it could it, be a letter. It's a, good, it's a good crowd pleaser. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so films that have like been popping up on that list, to so say like Capanam is like, the number one it has been number one I think since the beginning of the festival yeah. um, because it's got an Oscar norm it's about it, yeah. uh, you know it's about the refugee crisis yeah it's um, yeah, it, it's got all those, it's which, those which is always yeah which is always interesting the idea of sort of like the line we were saying about films that find themselves seemingly stuck in the festival circuit mm-hmm. to ones that seem to break through yeah and I just wonder what the kind of like difference between those really is so what is a film that's broken through so Kevin is going to be one that has like, right. the Oscar nom and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's like, that has a team of people that are dedicatedly put it into all of these mm-hmm. festivals to just get eyes on it until... So on the campaign the trail, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, that started from Cannes or whatever. And yeah. they're just, guess that, that is what happens anyway, but a film mm-hmm. like that kind of seems, because um, it's kind of a middle of the road um, drama. Mm. It kind of seems um, a bit more um, calculated okay. for it to do that. Yeah. You know, like, does it does it need to play here when it's already got the Oscar nom and it's already indeed, gonna have, yeah, indeed, it's already yeah. going to have a life beyond that, isn't it? Yeah. At this point. But whereas, like, London's Journey Tonight, I mean, like, what are the chances are going to get to watch this after LFF yeah. really? And the, the, and that has played Cannes. You know, there are a good few Cannes can films yeah. from last year. That well, that's we, the thing we, we we're talking about these films like Long Day's Journey Tonight as if that's like a blockbuster because it feels like a blockbuster. It does. It's such a blockbuster movie. When we run to see it at nine in the morning and but even like watching it as well yeah. it's like huge it's such a huge like film it is but then it's also you know it's this first it's this first uh full full feature from began yeah like it, it, in the scheme of things it's kind of small and hasn't it played kind of as a blockbuster in uh hong kong though yeah yeah in china yeah. we talked about this on on a previous episode oh uh, did you okay yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah the kind of marketing thing there um i'd love it if they tried a similar you know that sorry to go back to that movie but I, that could play so well with students and yeah, for sure. You know, the three D gimmick and art. I just think you know, it's one of those things like say something like they shall not. Was it they shall not grow old? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is also playing at this festival. So that's, so, playing here, which that's playing here. That's playing here, which is um, again, which is a strange one, but it's also like climbing up the audience award as well. Um, again, that kind of plays with a similar thing in the sense that it's trying to make a blockbuster out of something that's supposed to be a bit more esoteric. A, in the sense that that's a more like a film that was heavily researched and it's from yeah. the archives, which is usually something that people, like a wider audience, don't seem to be as interested in. And in fact, the whole sort of ethos of the movie is that we're going to make it so accessible and so exciting and so sort of like um, absorbing that you will be like, wow, I'm here, this is amazing, and they're going to try transform it into a cinema film, even though it seemed to have most success on TV. Yeah. At least in the UK it has. I mean, it was massive when it came out in the UK. It was the only thing people were talking about for a little bit. Um, but for me, the, there's very little difference between something like that and Long Day's Journey Tonight through its very sort of reviewer use of sort of cinematic, cinematic trickery. And I think that the same audience could get a kick out of both of those. Because yeah. I think if it's playing here and it's so successful here, 
um, they shan't grow old. And it isn't just like a, a UK thing with our own sort of particular heritage. Then why not Long Day's Journey and Tonight? Why can't a film from China not have that same sort of international sort of... That baggage. Yeah. Yeah. But did... Um, I'm not seeing uh, They Shall Not Grow Old, but that seems to have kind of worked as well in 2D as in 3D. Mm. And I don't think... I think Long Day's Journey and Tonight has to be seen in 3D. Yeah, the whole... It, not in a avatar, oh my god, the technology is so good that you have to see it in 3D. Well, I don't know, but you it's, can it's make that argument. Part of the entire point of that movie is that you go into 3D at the end. Yeah, but so... the, the thing with them, um, they shall not grow old. I mean, Peter Jackson just putting all this sort of stuff in. I mean, you can get the basic point of it by watching it in 2D, and that's how most people have seen yeah. it. That's what I'm saying. Television. But I don't think that's the case for. But what I'd say is that, you know, when we talk about sort of. I mean, this is, again, this is all about the theatrical experience and now you have to see things in theatrical like uh venues and stuff like that i mean well, if you've got 3d tv you're fine you yeah you're sorted fine, but... you can watch rick and morty in 3d <laughs> yes. um but yeah it's like I, I i think to go back to sort of your point about being sort of it has to be seen in 3d i mean we haven't seen long day's journey tonight in 3d and although in we both we both um we i mean we haven't seen it in 2d sorry yeah um and we both came out of it being like, we have to see this film in 3D again, because it is incredible and it is an amazing thing. I wouldn't want to cut it off in distribution um, just so everyone can just see it in 3D, because yeah, I yeah. think more people should just see it anyway, because we've talked about how 3D is used very effectively in the movie um, to communicate sort of ideas of space and of light and shadow. Yeah. Um, it's like Herzog with the caves. Exactly, That's the yeah. Line. yeah. It's, 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 it's used so evocatively. Like there's, there's things with like lens flares that you can sort of see... You can almost sort of like feel the reach of the light across the room, which I think is amazing. So there's one part, like, because you've been in darkness for so long, a character just turns on the room light and it just, like, it's almost like it stabs you. Like, it's yeah, incredible. Yeah, but you've got, it's got to be in 3D, though. No, I mean, and that's what I mean. But I, I'd be very interested to see how that works in 2D, whether we can still see the same sort of, like, care for blocking and for sort of, like, pictorial yeah. okay. like, spacing. But I think that... Um... I don't think that, that saying it sh- needs to be seen in 3D precludes, like, it getting a cinema release. I just think, it, don't let it go straight to Netflix. Don't let it go straight onto mm. some streaming platform where people don't get to see it in 3D at all. Like, and maybe it's fine for it to have a smaller release, mm. but everyone see it how it should be. Roma style. Indeed. Indeed. That hot topic. Um, it's nothing like Roma. Anyway, yeah. let's, let's move on from Long Day's <laughs> Journey. Because there's loads of other movies that we haven't talked about yet. I, don't, I, guess, I guess I kind of want to go back to this. Um, you think we covered this idea of like cultural capital and, and uh, you know, the movies having different, like as we've we've used LFF as our comparison point because that's another festival we both went to recently. Mm, no, yeah. Um, and obviously there's a big crossover with the movies. I was like thinking about what, what your choice of going to see your film at a festival means. Like mm. why, when you're choosing one film over another, like are you choosing a film that you can see down the line but you don't want to see now because because me i've kind of given up on uh trying to find stuff that's kind of really? my radar because because it's not really worked out for me so mm. i'm just like well i'll see uh knife and heart that might but they'll probably make it to me at some point in the future and i'd seen it before but, as well like I'd, but i'm just like well i'll just it. see it now and then i've seen it and i want to see it here do you know what i mean yeah um and so we've talked as well about like where's the real festival like it, it, by by just going to the, see those movies that have kind of had their not had their day they barely had their day but like that have played at other festivals and been seen in that context already like 
are we missing out on something else? Something that's like maybe less satisfying in a way, but like I think it's interesting when because um, as you say, like this is only the second I've been to many festivals, but this is only one the second that I've properly covered right. with with LFF, and it's interesting when you take a minute, say if you're doing some writing or whatever, you're on your laptop and you just sort of coast along what other people are writing about the festival, and it's almost as if you're not at the same one which is uh, pretty amazing. So we've been reading a lot of kind of the movie uh, reports talking about the sort of uh, image book and um, one film that I'm seeing today, actually, Garten. Um, and just all these sort of like newer titles and installation works and stuff like that, that we've seen bits and bobs of, but we haven't had a deep dive into. We had one day where we went to some of the installations, which were interesting. Um, yeah, I, mean, I like that it's part of the festival. I don't think that that would be like anyone's highlight. No. But I think it's a cool way to kind of spread out what the festival can be. Yeah, and, and sort of return again to certain ideas. I mean, the, talk about thematic programming, um, one of the installations is called Blackout, and it's all about slides uh, on these projectors, like sort of self-turning um, projectors, and just in different spaces and sort of their different interactions. Different ways of interacting with it. So some you yeah. can do yourself, some the uh, slides are going like really fast enough that it could be a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, others, there's... Um, Ones on different like surfaces. Audio recordings, yeah. Or, yeah, on surfaces. I, I actually quite enjoyed that. I did quite like it as well. Um, yeah. And there was a movie I saw last night, um, just to say how it ties back to the rest of it, uh, which was all, it was called uh, Around the World at Your Age, and it was a documentary about the filmmaker's father. When he was 30, he travelled around the world, like, different, literally to every different continent, just here and there. And it's all recreated from these photos that she's scanned and just uh, has, has made an incredible sort of audio scape on top yeah. of, and there are little scenes here and there, kind of like allegorical sort of like little scenes, uh, documentary scenes with a father where they've set up these little sort of scenarios here and there. But it is this idea of just like looking back through someone's holiday snaps. Because it is almost like you just sat there and the dad is just walking you through his holiday. But it's this incredible sort of abstract um, retelling of just sort of vague emotions felt at a very different time and how that's led to him now. Um but yes, yeah, so that was really great. That's one to look out for. Uh, but it does tie back to the rest of this sort of um, uh, strand within the festival about collated images. So we talk about these YouTube clip films. We talk about uh, the image book, which obviously has gone through the Goddard filter. Yes, and that that's been uh, that's been turned into an installation here. Mm. So it's uh, in a room in a hotel, like this old Art Deco hotel that I think was one of the only hotels that wasn't like destroyed uh, by Nazi bombing. Um, in Rotterdam um, and so there's kind of because uh, there's all this stuff in, in it about the Holocaust um, Goddard kind of can't let that I don't know he, I, wasn't, I wasn't into the movie but uh, the way that it's kind of interacts with the space is quite interesting because uh, he's brought a lot of the, the things that are in the film and kind of put those on display in the hotel okay. um, there's postcards everywhere but yeah, that's what said. If I, if I can just say one thing, coming back into this just little den that we've made, and every time we walk in, there's like one of these postcards from like Goddard postcards on the floor, and it's just like this. Um, it's just these two images, like a like an iPhone image of a it's dog. Like an image book. Almost. It's like an image book. But I remember walking in each day, seeing it on the floor, and going, "Ah, cinema." Oh, jeez. Yeah. But it, it. I don't know. Uh, ultimately, cut, cut you're, that out. ultimately, you're just. We'll see. We'll see how it plays. <laughs> ultimately, you're you're just watching. Um, you're just watching the movie on a monitor rather than an actual cinema screen. Mm. Uh, there's an amazing sound system, but I don't know, the whole vibe was just kind of weird. It was a lot of like, 
it was either chin strokers or people that were like marching out halfway through in anger. I did spot a famous video essayist, Kevin B. Lee, uh, there at my screening. He, uh, rather than sitting on a chair, just like fully laid on the ground, uh, soaking it all in with his little notebook. I was, I was impressed actually. I thought, this, this is a man that doesn't need to sit on a chair. This is a man that can, that can just say, I'm just going to lie on the floor, you know? That's, yeah, that's, he, 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 Kevin B. Lee is in cinema. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, I you meant of Cinema Sins. Oh, no, no, no. no. But he believes in cinema, cinema. cinema Sins. Okay. I'm Kevin B. Lee. Welcome to Cinema Sins. Cinema Sins. I'd like to see that. Like, I'd like to like see, I'd like to see him do like a video essay of Cinema Sins. Oh, okay. What counting up the sins of, is that, how, sins. What is, that is what sins is, right? yeah, it's, yeah, it, yeah, it's just basically just like, well, they say sins, it's just goofs or things it's that like, they, they yeah. find funny to, to mock. Yeah, it's like, uh, it says the MGM logo, but actually... <laughs> Did no you know that The Room the isn't a good movie? Yeah, like, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. whatever. You're, you're, you're doffing your uh, trilby or whatever. I was that's, doffing my trilby, yeah. Sorry, it's, a, it's an audible... Audio I, I forget, I'm, I'm all performance, guys. I'm all physical performance. Uh, so, yeah, so there, there was that installation of fucking bringing her right back, mm-hmm. reeling her in. Uh, there was also the Mean Cafe, which uh, had a sort of... We were we were quite excited for. Um, it's smaller than I expected, mm. um, but you kind of get the opportunity to like make your own memes um, using the Eric Allen Hatch generator. That's quite fun, and everything gets got uploaded onto um, Instagram. Um, yeah, which again is another image book, which is another kind absolutely. of like another collation of just sort of like uh, interpretations. I think the best part of that is probably the guide of like how to make a meme. But the whole thing it's is kind of, of like that. It's, of like, it's, it's what is a meme and how do you make one? Because me, me and Ben, I mean, I think we find ourselves to be a little memey. We like our memes, you know. Um, it's weird to kind of enter it and have these guides that kind of explain it, rather than say getting someone to sit down and sort of figure it out. Which yeah. I think maybe maybe could have been more sort of valuable. Although it is supposed to be an exhibit, it is supposed to be fully yeah, sort of like accessible. And there were quite a lot of like older people there as well, and I was sort of course, quite yeah. interested. Um, but it it, it reads like um, the David Boardwell uh, like <laughs> film art was was what I thought at the time. David Boardwell's meme art. Yeah, meme art and introduction. <laughs> That's kind of it. Um, and there's other stuff in there, like there was the. Um, David Boardwell would be on Four Chan. David Boardwell lives on HN. Yeah. That's his like, <laughs> entire vibe. Um, we stand a legend, David Boardwell. We do, we do, of course. Um, there, there was another one that was like uh, some kind of like Minecraft thing. You were like in a in a room and you just painted it. Mm. So I was just drawing dicks everywhere. That was good. Um, there, there was other ones that weren't interactive. There were the ones that were like um, I think it was the last YouTube rewind. So they had people who are, like, quite involved yeah. in sort of, like, say, like, YouTube compilations and all this sort of stuff, making sort of online memes and getting them to... Because basically the setup of it is that you have different individual booths that have been... Um, the, the concept behind them has been done by a different person who's kind of associated with memes. Um, so Eric Allen Hatch, of course, is um, a film programmer um, who most most well-known for his memes on Twitter, a lot of them circling around Uncle Boon Me and uh, Paul Blart. But there's also other kind of like voices here and there. So say someone who does lots of green tech stories uh, made his own one. And then yeah. you could like sort of like make your own sort of green tech sort of stuff. And what is the kind of vocabulary behind that? Which was interesting, but it's again, it sort of borders into the academic. But that's it, isn't yeah. it? This is kind of still a primitive like 
form in terms of people talking about it as something more than just goofing around online. Yeah, yeah. Um, Outside of its own context, it's yeah, a bit strange, yeah. that's it. And so... I mean, even the aesthetic of the cafe itself was a bit strange, I, I thought, because it seemed sort of vaguely about... Vaguely kind of like 90... Like, not 90s, like early 2000s. Like sort of vector art. almost, like... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kind of like, like millennial sort yeah, of vector yeah. aesthetic. Millennial, yeah. Um, Very, like, blocky. And it kind of didn't chime with what the content was. Yeah, so they kind yeah. of changed some of the content to make it like an earlier form of what memes are. But... Yeah, exactly. I mean, they used the impact typeface. Impact font and which is sort of it's almost kind of like I mean, impact typeface like memes. I don't know about you, but I don't really see many of them anymore. No. That feels like it's been phased out a little bit. I mean, Hatch obviously still absolutely kills it with them, <laughs> but I think because of the like advent, uh, the advent of like um, like Instagram and being able to like edit your images on your phone. Yeah. Um, those kind of typefaces have more become dominant yeah, and that sort of thing, and more sort of on the fly. Um, we edit images a lot more directly now as well, rather than using text-based mm-hmm. sort of memery. Yeah, we're not in paint, and that's become its own genre, isn't it? Because yeah. Paint, MS Paint memes. Um, so, yeah, it felt like formative, but mm-hmm. also I kind of like that the festival's taken a chance on something like that and like yeah. moving in this kind of direction. If they're gonna say, it was know, a fun day, look yeah. at all kinds of images in whatever form they can take, then that, I th- yeah. And host, as you say, these these YouTube compilations or these like live stream compilation films. Uh, yeah. One of which I'm looking forward to, and hopefully maybe we can record a little bit about it later. I'm seeing it tomorrow. It's called Present Perfect, and it's just a collation of like live stream live stream uh, streamers uh, in China. Um, and I'm really looking forward to it, to be honest with you, because it's just I can watch this sort of stuff. Say from on my at, at home. Uh, in my pants in bed just watching uh, YouTube or whatever or Twitch at home I'm like yes in the cinema let's do it I keep getting the uh, the song from the start of Vox Lux in my head oh yeah you saw Vox Lux yeah I took a chance and kind of liked it you seemed you didn't seem to like it when you came out there were things about it that were just sort of like so I remember we were sat there, you were having your sandwich, and you were just sort of like, yeah, it just has all these like crazy ideas, but there's just no, like... <laughs> your, your thing was that you wanted, like, Brady to like, sort of take a really tight, well-crafted script and work on that. That is what I would... I think, watching Box Art, I haven't seen The Child of a Leader, but this is Brady Corbett's second movie. He has such a uh, kind of instinctive uh, feel for, like, um, for a scene for like how to kind of play it in as few like as few camera moves or as few cuts as possible um he's very influenced by like Gus Van Sant and Michael Haneke and like other people like that but with this kind of um this kind of more almost Harmony Kareem madcap energy Mm. um but it doesn't, it doesn't come together in this movie at all. Uh, you know, I, I said to you that there, there's two separate uh, drug-taking scenes that are just a uh, footage of the entire event sped up, and you're like, why are you... You don't need to use that device twice. Um, Natalie Portman is giving this completely balmy performance. Um, and, it's, and it's kind of offensive in what it's trying to say about, like, school shooting and, like, uh, capitalism, like using terrorism for its own gains and it doesn't it literally doesn't have a conclusion you think maybe it's its its own ambition is it in itself like tripping over its own ambition but but it's like it's 
kind of good to watch it reach for that. But then I'm, I'm also thinking, am I just giving it a pass for reaching when actually mm. it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't actually grab achieve anything. anything. So, yeah, it doesn't, so, it doesn't so then, achieve what it's after. Yeah. So then it's it. It's kind of a good move for this festival, I think, because it's a it's it's the most Hollywood take on it on a Rotterdam kind of thing, right? In what sense, as you mean? Uh, in that it's a it's a, obviously a really Hollywoody kind of American movie. Okay. But it's um, experimental in certain ways and um, not satisfying in ways, and it's an emerging filmmaker. So I think it's like... <laughs> Has that been your IFR experience? It's been uh, very unsatisfying. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> ropey as fuck. So <laughs> ropey as um, So, um, it's all right. Um, I think that... Uh, it's hard to talk about because you, you've not seen it yet, but... Um, or ever. No, or ever. And the way you're selling it, to be fair. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of... I don't know, I keep thinking about little bits of it think about oh, maybe that was quite well done. Ah, do you think it's one of those movies so, that kind of like wedges into your head? Yeah. And you're going to be thinking about it in two weeks' time. You'll be like, maybe I should watch it again. Because, but also because it's like so bad as well that it that it's going to trick me into thinking that it's good. <laughs> um. So. <clears throat> yeah. Um. But another sort of that's the movie about a pop star. Um. But there was a real pop star in uh, the Juniper Tree. Uh, which is Björk's uh, 80s sort of first film role. I think um, 1990, actually. I think it's just oh, yeah. I, I think I'm going to split yeah, hairs with you, mate. Well, yeah. uh, it's a very young Björk, um, and it's this kind of... Uh, it looks like it's set on, like, Bergman Island or something, um, and it kind of takes... It's, it's definitely in that kind of mould of, like, um, the Bergman, John Ford, uh, Kurosawa kind of fairy stories and folk tales um and it's um it's just this kind of lilting kind of song um mm. and i really I, I found it quite moving even though it doesn't really doesn't really say much it doesn't try and do too much it's just um but if you like those kind of you know almost a chamber piece with amazing atmosphere then that and it's got this the Björk star presence hmm. brings this whole other dimension to it that probably wasn't there when it first appeared. Well, maybe this is more of a strand than than when we're giving it credit because uh, there was one documentary, the first film I saw at the festival actually, it's called BNK48, um, Girls Don't Cry. And it's a documentary about uh, BNK48, who are this um, Thai um, girl band, sort of like idol group, you know, like uh, sort of like BTS, that kind of thing. Um and the documentary literally is just them sat in a room just being interviewed in a very sort of like gentle um, manner, just sort of like talking about sort of their anxieties. And it's very sort of straightforward, uh, like um, uh, premise. But the idea of it is a chamber piece in this one sort of interview room with each of these young girls um, is what brings attention in the film that is just at the periphery, which is the idea that their lives are being managed for the next six years and the idea that they are without control, um, especially as time goes on and they become more and more beholden to their fans and sort of change their identity uh, to go with their sort of like fans' wants and desires, that kind of thing. So I think maybe this is actually more of a strand than we think because we've had like a few pop star films and maybe the original uh <laughs> Pop star Mr. Van Gogh as well. He's also wow, uh, yeah, yeah. Is that are you trying to segue me on to talking about? I am, yeah. Loved it when you talked about it when you came out of it. Um, and he's also uh, the, the dark horse of the uh, 
Oh, he is. I'm. I'm. Uh, actors, yeah. I am a huge Willem Dafoe fan. I used to watch a Willem Dafoe movie every Wednesday, and I'd call it Willem Wednesdays because uh, on every Wednesday you watch a Willem. That's kind of the idea. Beautiful. Um, and on Wednesday, uh, you know, Willem Dafoe does the voiceover at the start of Vox Lux, and then I went straight into At Eternity's Gate, where Willem plays uh, Van Gogh. Van Gogh. We're in. We're in the Netherlands. We're in the Netherlands. Um, and it's a really interesting performance. I think. Um, He's not going to win the win any win the Oscar, but it's it uses his kind of image. Um, you know, Willem Dafoe's this kind of uh, he's mad. He you know he, he's first and foremost he's mad, but there's this kind of poet um, sensibility to him. There's this kind of sadness in him, and that's why he's been able to play such a range of roles. And I think that that combined with this kind of look at Van Gogh as myth rather than as a person almost. Mm. Um, makes it a very interesting synthesis of character and performer. Um, it's almost perfect casting, and that kind of... I don't want to say that does the job already, because there's there's a lot of stuff to like in it. This is Julian Schnabel's take, um, so it's very, like... There's a lot of close-ups, um, kind of... Uh, it's, it's A lot of it's about the sort of camera perspective. I, 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 I felt like, at times, it was trying to um, almost use the camera to... Uh, explore the Van Gogh kind of visual style and see how photography has been like impacted by that through things like, um, you know, filming rain, uh, film, filming through a window as rain smashes against it and seeing the blobs on the other side of it, mm. of people moving or grass in the background and how that might look like something that Van Gogh would paint. And he films the actual painting sequences with this, um, really vivid colour. The, the the paint looks like it's looks like three D. It's like bursting off the screen. Um it reminded me of the uh, Pollock um bio, biopic by Oh um, with Ed Harris. Ed Harris, yeah. yeah, yeah. That was his like passion project. Did similar things where it just made you know you can tell it's like a love letter to mm. to that. Um it follows a lot of the kind of beats and the tropes of your your biopic. Especially or, or even a lot of Van Gogh biopics. I was gonna say that kind of subgenre in of itself. Absolutely yeah. like you know you're going to get to the ear. You're going to have all the kids throwing stones at him and him getting kicked out of all and having to go to the asylum. Um, and this whole sort of, uh, I mean, the one thing that's obviously really worrying about a lot of them is this whole idea of romanticising him as a, like a tortured artist. And it totally is. It, yeah. That is, um, yeah, I talked about that in my, in my review. I don't think it challenges that at any point. Mm. Um, the, uh, but, but, it's, but it's hard to, right? Because he is, He's such a canonised guy, and he is mm. the archetype of the tortured He His story is, like, more maybe than anyone else. Yeah. Completely, you know, he was so mad, but he was just ahead of his time. He but never that, saw that, a painting in his thing, life. That's the like, thing that I always disagree with, these, like, Van Gogh biopics that always go on this sort of ahead-of-his-time sort of thing. And yet, so much of his art has been informed by his times, yeah. by his life, and by, sort of, say, when he was, like, being medicated, when he was at the asylum and all this sort of stuff. Because a lot of these sort of side effects of some of the drugs he was taking could have lent themselves to the perspectives that he was giving into his painting. But it's this whole idea that so many people have gone on the, on the line of saying, oh, no, he just had this this thing that was within him. There was something right. just special that was just within him, rather than him being a product of his own zeitgeist, which, in, which of course, was very cruel. It was yeah. very cruel to him. It didn't recognise him at the time. But so many films so solely rely on that, when I think there's yeah. more of an interplay, <laughs> a, a sort of, like, interplay between the two. Well, I think it, it, it does... Deal with if you accept the notion that that that, that he had something special within him, mm. then it at least articulates 
the difference, the, the kind of almost like Lacan problem of expressing the language in your head mm. in, onto something that other people can interpret. Yeah. yeah. And how he's trying to create a language of pain to put those ideas out there. Okay. So it, and how there's that, you know, in his mind, he is clear and he sees the world and he can like experience it. But to other people, he's this like fucking pisshead who stinks this man and can't talk to anyone. Yeah. So it, it does, it does do that. But as you say, it's not a radical look. It's not doing anything. No, really yeah, yeah. New. But, but it's yeah. interesting what you were saying about sort of like the use of photography in it as being almost kind of like trying to like replicate the sensation of, of, of his painting. Yeah. And because obviously the last biopic that we've had loving vincent takes that in a very that is um, so literal yeah so literal yeah um this to um, the point where you kind of you almost think they might not get it like they might not yeah. just get what it's about like he's sort of painting the idea of the sort of spontaneity of it yeah it's it's, it's well, so well, sort of calculated the kind of camera work is a lot of like sort of fast moves and mm. it's like it's kind of quasi-documentary mm. it's like yeah, I... that is the strand of the film though that you've made sound the most interesting, and that's why I'd like to watch it. Because before, to be honest with you, again, it's it's another Van Gogh um, biopic. It's sort of um, an awards season outlier. Yeah, there was nothing about it that really caught my attention. If I was going to see it in my free time, I think it's worth watching for the Defoe performance. Yeah, I mean, uh, and yeah. and the touches of stuff that Chernobyl does. I don't, I don't think any of it's like, a, do you know, what I mean, I don't think it's a full thesis about mm. photography and Van Gogh. Yeah, but I just think there's there's stuff there. There's a current there. There's that's, a current that, there. Yeah. That's, that's noticeable. Um, yeah, I, I want you know it's it's Willem. He's fucking kills it, doesn't he? This yeah. guy's like he's always been killing it. He's yeah. He's in um, Aquaman for God's sake. He rides a shark. He was he was in at Eternity's Gate and Aquaman. Yeah. He's just even, what a year, what a wild year he's having. He even gave Brady Corbett a, mo- a morning. To that's what I'm saying. Like <laughs> just jeez. Um. So, uh, so have you got any large? Do you want to do one more? Uh, recommendation Dishonored again we've talked about it I'd really 100% recommend that to yes anyone like wh- wh- whatever nefarious means you need to go in to watch it I, I, yes. I definitely get it there's a masquerade scene in that that is just some of the best sort of like costume work like relating to Dietrich's sort of like iconic look it's just incredible absolutely incredible yeah. it's just such a big moment when it happens um and just the, the entire energy of that movie is just so gratifying to watch. There's a tension in each film that is giddy. It's so giddy yeah, all yeah. the way through. Um, the lead actor who plays against it is wild <laughs> as well. He is fantastic. So he plays this um, Russian colonel who's also behind enemy lines. He's another spy. But his, like, his energy is insane. He has the strangest energy. He's like a butcher. He's like a mad butcher. <laughs> he's he's like, oh, yes, yes my, my darling. <laughs> like, he's raring a go, like, all the time. And obviously, Dietrich's just, like, playing him down. That's like, the whole movie. It's that's like, it. It's, it's so great. It's all about he wants to fuck, but he knows that if he fucks, he's fucked. He's done for, he's yeah. Fu- and so it's... But you can't not, because it's, it's Dietrich. That's that's the whole movie. And it's fucking just brilliant. It's, it's, incredible. So it's, it's amazing. It's honestly it's so great. Um, and that was one that I didn't really, I, you know, I didn't know about it until the day. And you said you were going to go see it. And I was sort of like, you know what? I'm going to book a ticket. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad I did. Yeah, it did, the, that strand has been such a treat. The, Ninochka as well, the Ernst mm. Lubitsch one. I think that, that is quite a, more of a well-known one. But that's uh, only Garbo's second uh, talkie. And mm. it's her second last film. And it's the only comedy she ever did. And uh, she's incredible. She's got this, like, super deadpan delivery that's just amazing she like eats every single word it's it's 
that's another culture clash movie. Uh, yeah, fucking killed it. <laughs> um, and it's her with I can't remember his name, but he's in a lot of the Alex Lubitsch uh, comedy. So he's kind of you got the archetypal Lubitsch uh, gentleman, yeah, with Garbo's. Uh, you know, spit in my face energy. Um, and, yeah, that's really funny. Oh, I'd say that it leads on to, like, maybe maybe my last point, which is how ingratiating it's been um, watching the Twitter feed on the big screen. Oh, yeah. Just before yeah. each film, they have, like, a live stream of, say, like, the Twitter or their Instagram or whatever. And our dumb tweets have been, like, making their way on there. So you're... Yeah. So it's just so great. So, I, yeah. So just, as you say, we're talking about these festivals and sort of, like, what are they, like, geographically? To get a sense of them before every movie, I really, really love that. Yeah. Even if it is just the dumb twaddling whatever that we're doing. I think this festival is, like, got fantastic, like, branding and... Um, it, 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 sorry, that that sounds like it's um, doing it a disservice, but... Uh, no, not it's, really. It's, 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 we talk about how broad and experimental the programming is. And it's and it's branded in this way that makes you it's so unified, it makes it yeah. seem essential, unified, international. Uh, it's such a well-run festival. Like every yeah. movie starts on time. Do you know what I mean, oh, it is. Yeah, <laughs> you don't actually get that at a lot of a lot of other ones. Like, no hiccups. No. But, um, yeah, it's this idea that kind of a lot of sort of what we've been watching, and maybe this is why we've caught so much of the program because we had a kind of idea of what we we're going to watch before we came in, but yet on the day we're just like actually. We keep discovering all these different things. Yes. So maybe you haven't done as bad for discovering movies as you think. I mean, I know you have to kind of like newer movies, like I think, yeah. newer releases, but I think in a kind of like off-the-cuff sort of way, we've come into contact with a lot of things we wouldn't have before. Oh, definitely. But I, I, I guess uh, people, the romantic notion of like, I had no idea what this <laughs> film was, and I just walked into a masterpiece. Mm. And because before the fest- every festival, I like to sit down and look exactly what I'm going to watch and try and plan out my whole week yeah um, even though it never quite goes to that but you know I, so so maybe that's why i've kind of not, maybe not, maybe i don't feel like i've discovered it. i mean either way we're gonna go see high life today so we're gonna record another, another bit but um i'm very so much looking forward to it stick around for some uh claire Denis chat we're not chatting with claire Denis, but we'll be chatting about her i'm with joe going for the long I think the Zane trying to tell you something I came in with a cool heart And I got some bitches coming And I got some bitches coming Um, alright, well, this is as good as we're going to get Yeah So, um, hey, we're back uh, We just came out uh, of High Life Just come out of High Life And uh, this is Claire Denise's latest It's her first sort of American production um, it's a space opera, I guess you could say. Um, and uh, take it away. I mean, how, how are you feeling about this? I feel about Robert it. Patterson starring. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, so to give a bit of context, earlier in the week, we were also at a Claire Denis Masterclass, which has to be one of the highlights of the festival for me. That was a riot. That was like so much fun. Um, an interesting thing that she brought up was that um, the original casting for High Life, which has been several years in sort of pre-production due to much finance, it's the biggest film I think that she's launched in terms of like production, also with the kind of people that she's getting in it. Um, and that, so her original casting for the lead was actually Philip Seymour Hoffman, which she very poignantly pointed out because it was a character she wanted that he had no reason left to live, and then sadly, shortly after she'd figured that out that she wanted him in the film obviously he passed on 
Um, so Robert Pattinson taking this role in the way that Claire sort of built it was oh, I wasn't too sure I wasn't sure what I was going to make of it I wasn't sure what I was going to think about it and yet it's some of our Pat's best work I think it, it's incredibly um, stoic performance something very dangerous behind his body all the time um, yeah it kind of uses him as this kind of sculpted figure doesn't yeah. it you know He's he can he kind of radiates this weird energy that other people are globbing onto constantly yes, throughout yes. It, It's one of those things like his whole sort of like legacy of like the Twilight films and all that sort of stuff about him being a very sort of like statuesque yeah. or almost very sort of like strangely vibed out performer. It, it's, it's the one that's been the most clear with that energy, the one that's sort of the most sort of like um, intense performance he's done. Definitely. She, she is using that. Um, and it's hard to... I, I mean, I could see the Philip Seymour Hoffman one working, but I think it's a very different role like yeah. if, if you give it to him not just because of that age um, although I do think that would have changed radically the supporting cast members as well because well she, she didn't mention that she had British Arquette on board That's in it. her Juliet Binochet role I was thinking um, more about because the premise of High Life is essentially that these are prisoners that have been sent into space to conduct experiments uh, that's essentially it yeah. um, but all the sort of other prisoners um, with the exception of Andre 3000 um, are all similar to sort of our Pats's age Yes. Um, they're all sort of younger people and seem to be almost like kind of like the the, the, the usual sort of Denny type of beautiful bodies in some far off location. Um, say 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 like a Beauvoir. Yeah. Oh, this is like the closest to that that she's got. I think because yeah. of the the regimen of being in a prison. Mm-hmm. Um, the enforcement of kind of order on sort of um, right. You know, sort of youthful bodies, bodies without sort of like an expression that wants to come out. Yeah, absolutely. And the kind of, um, the, like, structures that people kind of fall into, like, naturally. You know, like, um, Juliet Binoche with, like, a lab coat on suddenly kind of gives her this weird authority, even though yeah. she's not a pilot, and she's also a prisoner, and they talk about that, but, yeah, she still kind of gets to... There is, yeah, there is no, like, um, no moral sort of high ground that she has as a character, and yet asserts it. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, Binoche as well is, like... Um, is incredible in it as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a great, like, follow-on from her performance in... Uh, let the sun shine in last year for, for Claire. Yeah, I mean, it's almost an inverse, like inverse. Yeah, role, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but she's so kind of menacing and bewitching. Like she's got this witch bewitching. hair. She talks about say, it as a witch hair at some point. Well, bewitching's the right word because it does <coughs> the like the way that her costume's put together, the way she's wearing like those Doc Martins or whatever, who wear the kind of workman's boots, but also the the way she has very long hair in this film that's um, got like a braid, like one massive yeah. braid that goes through, and it's sort of uh, evocation of like fairy tale sort of like. Uh, witches and sort of like temptresses and all this sort of stuff it's, it's very sort of um, it's, it's the most overtly sort of mystical character in what is a very mystical movie like it is mystical and it's it's um, it's ambiguity I think is like it's clear you know the, the, it, to go back to this masterclass again the, the guy um, who ran it Simon Field uh, yes. he was talking about uh, Denise movies as being like labyrinths where you have to work so hard to like piece together the, the information and I, I I kind of take issue with that comment I we think both disagreed with that yeah. it's a it's certainly giving you like rhythms and patterns of information but you're not you don't have to work necessarily to know no, she just provides everything she that provides you it all it, yeah. at every point you know when uh, without going into spoilers like there's dogs at the start of the movie and there's dogs near the end of the movie yeah. and that kind of link can you can draw that can very, very easily, easily draw up the thematic yeah, links what that is yeah with her imagery and sort, yeah. of, and, and the sort of cyclical way that she sort of edits a film together I mean everything every movie seems to always like 
sort of end where it began in a way, like, yeah. but just with just a different outlook. I mean, this, this kind of jumps around in time without ever making a deal of it. It can be for like one shot at a time, then it back. And, and you know, if you think of this in this kind of lineage of modern, like Hollywood prestige sci-fi movies, like Interstellar and Arrival. Which is, of, it's a very actively like yeah, in, in that sort of heritage that. as well, yeah. But it, but this kind of shits on their kind of those movies kind of po-faced like look at the way that we're playing with structure and time and or even uh, what, what it's like sort of research I mean it's one of these things where it's very yeah. clear from how a lot of the special effects in the film are motivated that a lot of research has gone into it um, whilst also still paying its dues sort of and I do think it's paying its dues I think it's surprising how much um, back referencing there is to other sci-fi classics within oh yeah, yeah. like we were talking about Douglas Trumbull being like you know obviously the, the iconic sci-fi uh, special effects person and yet so many rings of like 2001 and Silent Running happen in high life uh, to yeah. a surprising degree um, yeah but also um, even stuff like uh, the, the Tarkovsky sci-fi is an obvious kind yeah. of jumping point but um, and especially I don't know if we, we can get too much into the kind of um, the sexuality in the film and like how that's kind of oh there's loads of it I'm pretty sure can, we can say some of it but um at least in her style, I, I was really thinking of uh, the Soderbergh's version of Solaris, yeah. which has a similar kind of uh, sheen that's um, belying some kind of um, sickness. Know, internal sickness. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, she was, and of course with Solaris, I mean the floating glove in high life. You know, right? Yeah, 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 yeah totally. Um, and that's the thing with with Denise, it's like one thing that I'm not sure you know I can't say if anyone talks about it or not because I haven't done the research properly but it feels like we never talk about her as a filmmaker's filmmaker in the sense that she really loves cinematic history yeah. in her films and I think High Life is probably one of the most sort of outwardly sort of tipping yeah. the hat to so many things yeah. it's like it's a fan movie in doing a doing sci-fi doing prison movie and they're two like super strong genres yeah the, yeah if you can kind of call to all those things you know without being a bore like Nolan right yeah exactly yeah um, soundtrack's incredible as per <laughs> yeah I mean like, like hard jazz yeah it's just hard these awful things going on screen yeah it just oh my god and it's just so I, I'd say it's like totally into, just to kind of the usual sort of like scores we used to with science, yeah. science fiction sort yeah, of thing yeah. and I think in a way it's a lot more intimate using it's use of music in particular um, because the whole movie of course is more intimate because as I say it is a prison movie it's about people being confined within spaces over yeah. very long periods of time I'm sorry I'm just explaining prison now uh, <laughs> yeah. but but she takes that kind of like idea and really runs with it and, and puts it through all these sort of like science fiction tropes and stretches it into new angles that we've never seen really um, I wanted to talk about the music first go on and then get onto these ideas like the prison um, but in, in comparison to kind of other sci-fi movies even stuff like Annihilation uh, which has a great score yeah. and it's quite sort of electronic based or it's always like a classical soundtrack and this always seems to signify like you know heavenly reaching towards the abyss or wherever or the you know, uncanny, the of uncanny itself, of, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that using jazz is kind of it's, it seems um, kind of outside of itself um Although the effect is magnificent uh, at times, it's 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 a weird one because it's sort of um, so say you're saying these sort of more sort of uh, orchestral sort of scores, these sort of sweeping sort of ones that um, denote more about the idea of space, the idea of the um, of, of what the kind of alien presence is in the yes, film. What right. is it that differs from something? It's so much more. The music's so much more based in the internal bodies of these characters. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, the um, 
yeah, like jazz kind of reflecting like the heartbeat and that kind of yeah. um, the internal organs, and that's kind of what the yeah, yeah. is about. It's like your fluids, everything that's inside you, what can grow inside you, what can't. It's look, the, look, you know, these people living in a container, but they themselves are a container of say if it's radiation for instance which is a big part of the movie yeah. it's also infertility and fertility as well yeah, yeah it's kind of prisons that exist within our organs yeah it's very like it's like the Foucault book about prisons as a yes. as a sci-fi movie basically well if that hasn't got you going guys yeah if that doesn't make you want to turn off this podcast immediately then uh, I don't know what will but um, it's never it's never like shoving any of this stuff in your face I think that it, no, I mean even even uh, watching it, I see. I feel like it's in a in a strange way probably the most accessible Denis movie. I think in terms of its sort of plotting and structure, and it yeah. does it does go to degrees of um, exposition with certain higher concepts here and there. But they're so subtle and they're so sort of built yeah. into the universe as well. The yeah, the the most abstract stuff is almost the things in between that. Yeah, it's the kind of in between the big set pieces are these quiet moments where. I don't know. It's not. It's not even like uh, contemplation or anything like that. It's just yeah. that it's kind of it's moving, but at this very low ebb. And it is. Let's say I, that's true. Um, there's no contemplation. It really is something because these people are like trapped in this prison. All they've got to do is to keep themselves busy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as you say, the film like most most elliptical part of the movie is just figuring out the relationships between these people because there is some kind of signalling here and there but it's always changing it's always becoming it's always a bit changing. more sinister and a bit more abusive you know yes. it's it's um, you, you wonder how far it'll go and it does go far it goes it goes to some places which is great it does yeah um, yeah it, it just it kind of delivers on every front you know it's not even it's not like um, it doesn't even have that kind of pompous like overlong thing that a lot of uh, Very lead, sci-fi movies yeah. But it's, there's just so much in there anyway. And I think that's that's something that reminds me of the, the uh, Soderbergh's Laris as well, because that's under two hours. Mm. And, like, I, I'm a big fan of the, like, 80-minute art movie, the yeah, big yeah, yeah. thing in the 60s, where you just, like, can cram all this time and stuff, this transcendental shit, into such a short time space, but that's enough. Yeah. And this was probably two hours, but there's so much more in it than that. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's pretty special. It's pretty special. So, um, we talk about like the fuck box and the sex in it. Yeah, and, can't you? Yeah. Um, Personally, the fuck box I feel was over signalled by the critics that have watched it so far. I, I think in, in, in all the mo- like moments in the film, like it wasn't like my favourite part of it. It was one of the most full-on sort of like really Denise. Yeah, that was like I've seen that in other in other works. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't like my favourite part. It's kind of like the um, I was saying. It's kind of like the fish penis in Shape of Water. <laughs> you know, it's it's sort of um, it's overly seen as this sort of like component of the film, and where it has got a very poignant moment after the footbox scene yeah. with Andre and uh, Rob Panson um, talking kind of about oh, abstinence yeah. and chastity versus masturbation, essentially. But you know, there's something about that kind of like because they're in the earth, they're sort of like they're, they're, they're growing plants and all this sort of stuff, and it's being within the muck but they're both approaching it in very two different ways you know Yeah. and it's this idea of both trying to reach some kind of focus or grace but through completely different kind of actions right yeah that's what my take I, from it well I saw the fuckbox as this like sex and death death drive kind of thing yeah. where they're literally in the blackness of of, of, the, of nothing and you know when later on there are bodies in space um, dead bodies in the middle of 
nothingness. Yeah. They are back in the fuckbox, you know what I mean? Ah, and, okay, and yeah. The black hole is the biggest fuckbox well, that, of all. Well, that was it. That's what we said. Like, it's one of those things, like, there's, there's a parallel scene that's also this kind of, like, growing intensity to the fuckbox scene with a completely different character, but it has this same sort of tempo and rhythm of just, like, you know, driving a motorcycle towards brick wall sort of thing you know like which bit is that sorry so we're talking about the fuck box and we're talking about the black hole scene oh I see the first oh, one. oh I thought you meant they were being into a cut That's... no 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 no, yeah, no. Yeah. so the two of them are like mirroring um, <laughs> yeah 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 exactly um, and they talk about the the black hole as being like an eye yeah and it's it's all that kind of uh, you, you know when um, this is like total spoilers now so I might I might cut this out or mm-hmm. if not spoiler warning um, spoiler alert Skip to 120 to 45 to avoid more talk of the sex box. When Binoche is uh, effectively raping Robert Patterson right after she's like, after that, there's been that awful scene with the with the, uh, the guy with the tattoos. Yes, right. yeah, okay. Then immediately after that, Binoche goes and extracts from Patterson and she's like saying all this kind of phantasmagoric stuff about like, her like wants and her desires but she can't do that with Patterson being awake and I don't think she wants that either like when, when she shares scenes with a conscious Patterson there's not that same energy no. so it's like for her and she's talking about him like why don't you hold me when you touch me all this stuff like that's it's the, with, it's it's, the withheld it's the withheld yeah exactly yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, like, yeah it all automatically swirls around yeah, I totally agree yeah. I mean the whole that whole scene if we, if we haven't cut this bit out the entire sort of like because there is like a very violent rape scene just beforehand um, and yet the one with Binoche is even more insidious in the sense that because he is unconscious bodies and he is more than one person as well there's a total uh, and, it, and it's this um, it, it, it uh, undercuts the kind of Hollywood uh, idea of, of like you know oh, this awful guy was going to do something bad but don't worry a hero saved him and then he's got his comeuppance and it's okay it's not immediately like the most powerful person who represents the kind of corporate entity that's behind everything is the dynamic shifts in her favour just even more yeah exactly she just can do it she can just walk in and just keep just control it, yeah. of their bodies and well she literally is controlling their bodies yeah. sedatives as well like she literally yeah, is yeah, keeping yeah. the chemical balance in their bodies you yeah. know, which is a big part of what Pattinson does in the film for a long time is that he withholds from taking certain drugs from taking certain water uh, and it's possibly the reason why he's the one that can produce a, ch- a child you know yeah. and it's this idea of him not necessarily being chased but just being so sort of bodily conscious yeah yeah like uh, I was I was kind of at the start when he when there was that scene about them talking about what chastity, you do in the yeah. sex box and chastity yeah. I was like oh no he survived because he didn't fuck this is like a classic horror movie right it's like in, in but you know, he's the final girl he's the final girl well then again that's said with Denny and her history of like grindhouse sort of and uh, horror like yeah. um, finding its way into her films I mean maybe oh, yeah maybe Bar Pats is the uh, the final girl of high, of high life I mean it did start to take on that kind of aliens slasher aspect not that there's a slasher but that they're being picked off one by one by yeah. the circumstance. So it's, I, very, it's very lurid, like Lightning's um, scheme as well to a lot of it. Yeah, you know? yeah, definitely. It's very sort of. Um, it, it's not clinical. I was I was about to say clinical, but it's it isn't not. that. There's something quite sort of um, uh, in the way that flowers grow in, like say, jungles, all that sort of stuff. There's something yeah. so profuse about it. So sort of. Um, uh, Oh, I'm trying to find the word now. Um, it's something like organic, but just sort of overtly so, something growing, right? So sort of like out of control, sort yeah, of. Thing. That's yeah. how I, that's how the lighting made me feel a lot of the time, right? In, in a sort of like annihilation with that kind of yeah um, prism, prism trees growing, yeah, that kind of thing. yeah, fungal kind of uh, yeah. Um, Highlight, folks. Yeah, I mean, this is a 
gorgeous movie. Like, I was just saying, I think A24 is going to do a good job with it because it's just the right the right kind of mad film that they they can market to a big audience. I think if this is a film, uh, if there's going to be a film that Denny's going to break to a wider audience, although, of course, she's become a lot more venerated in the last few years as well. Yes, definitely. Um, I think within... We're saying this in the this context... This is a perfect storm, really, for her. Yeah, I'm saying this well's more venerated in the, in the context of sort of our interaction with her and the people that we know from, like... she become, like... It's almost like a Varda-esque sort of, like, yeah. meme. Like, people kind of know of her in certain terms and she's becoming kind of, like, semi-mythologised. Definitely, yeah. She's... Well, she's... She's always been this figure yeah. in the film world who is like consistently putting out these incredibly rich films yeah. and that gets the sort of clout from the, the critics, but has never. Um, I think it's it's to do with this, this kind of uh, changing of the critical guard yeah. that yeah. she she can kind of. Uh, she's, she's it's just kind of her time. Yeah, well, I really like hope so that. as well. I mean, yeah. I'd say that any movie that's going to do it, it's this because it's, well, it's it's it's. it's as I said, oddly enough, it's the most accessible of her films that I've seen. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the one most well, rich in the kind of... I don't think it's any less accessible than Beau Travis. just got Hollywood stars and the Hollywood kind of sheen that, I wouldn't, that makes well, it. I don't know about that. It's, it's, because there's something about, like, highlight. Maybe it's just because I'm conscious of the budget and conscious of all that sort of stuff. With Beau Travis, there is something very Spartan about it, in which you find that the kind of economic storytelling is what keeps it very elliptical, I think, at times. Uh-huh. Whereas with um, High Life... You're saying there's so many ideas in there. There's so much going on, like, and not in a kind of like um, overloaded way or anything like that. It's just very lean. I think its narrative is actually one of the more simplistic ones that she's ever like produced. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of the the motivations and the yeah, and, and the situation itself. Yeah. 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 I think that's fair. There's not a lot that's telegraphed abstractly. I don't think, but um, I think what it, it reminded me of was um, I was, I, there's these kind of sci-fi films that aren't sci-fi films and the big one that's come to my mind is like Red Desert the Antonioni yes where it's like that is like this weird alien movie yeah. that's just set in an industrial landscape in yeah it's set yeah, on a, yeah. Um, but it's that same kind of thing where he's like that was his first like well half American movie because yeah. it had Richard um, Richard Harris and stuff in it and and so it's kind of like reutilizing earlier themes and like pulling it into this different I don't know maybe it's the kind of look of it as well I don't know where I'm going that, that can be a big thing though I think aesthetics can play into sort of like how accessible a film is yeah I I, I, th- I find that Denise almost like an invert inversion of um, Antonio as well in the, yeah. in their use of like space and like and architecture, like, and people within that, yeah. is that Antonioni is like, here is a vast, vast space and a vast thing, and here is how insignificant yeah. a person is within that. Yeah. And Denis is like, look at how big a person can be. Yeah, in Bajoraya, that's exactly yeah. what it is. It's, it's one of those things where, even though they're in these amazing sort of like deserts and these amazing landscapes and stuff, it's their sort of presence that yeah. just swamping yeah. Yeah, the yeah, entire yeah. landscape and just being communicated by that landscape. And their sort of the tension between the two uh, central figures in Beaudrevai is just so massive that the desert can't. They can't be. This desert's too small for the big of us. Oh, what is it? No, sorry. This uh, oh, this desert ain't big enough for the both of us. Right, That's yeah. what it is. Uh, for me, I'm like this is this is like top tier, Denis. You're, you're not quite. I don't know. I don't know. It, it, I'm still sort of rattling around in my head because there are so many Denis films that I've come to love as well. I mean. We talk about it like we've known her all our lives, but it's only over the last few months that I've really discovered her work. Yeah, but yeah. I've really fell in love with it. Um, just as a little anecdote, when um, 
we were at the masterclass and someone mentioned Simon Field he mentioned Beau Travai which wasn't a subject of conversation because everyone was just like well that's the big film Denise did sort of say to herself in such a you know a casual way <laughs> she didn't know that she was rocking my world when she said it she just said oh rhythm of the night and I was like, ah! <laughs> everyone was like cheering it was oh good. it was a massive good movement but I think she inspires that kind of that fervent yes you know fandom yeah. really she's, she's, she's someone that you don't feel sort of midway about I feel I think you're right yeah um, well, at least I've never met anyone who's either not, who's yeah, not either no, loved or hated her. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of take a very strong stance. People that are people that are like I don't know anyone hates it. I don't know. Any, I've, not, I've met some people who've that. been sort of like, oh no, I just it's not for me at all. This sort of stuff. Really? It's not that out there. It's not, I know, I know, it's not in that. It's very there, particular. It's like I don't find it as kind of aggressive and ugly as like the Lynn Ramsey technique which I, I kind of find them comparable no I think to. what it is some people that I talk to I think it's, it's, it's Denise sort of approach to sexual violence sometimes is what is a barrier yeah. for them yeah, and yeah. it is a theme that she explores so much and people have talked about it en masse about sort of the proximity between ultra violence and tenderness this idea of just loving someone until you murder them sort yeah. of thing you know loving them so hard that you break the skin you know <coughs> um, and some people I've, I've met have taken umbrage with that but otherwise, there has been no other kind of like barrier for them yeah. because it is such a strong current in her work as well. It, I, I do feel that can make or break it for you. For right. me, it totally makes it. I, I think, God, if there was ever like, yeah, you know, forget any other like director who leans on Grindhouse sort of like history, but Denise the one. Yeah. Triple every day, my God. But yeah, so High Life uh, was incredible coming out in UK cinemas in March. Right, is it? It is, yeah. It's been, it's been announced. I think it's late March, but it's coming out soon. It's coming out soon. Um, yeah. So, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you probably don't need much encouragement to go and see it. Yeah. But it's great. And uh, as is Rotterdam, I think. Rotterdam is a, good, a very good festival. Yeah, we've been enjoying it. We've still got a day left of it. You're feeling uh, kind of the, the, the edge of it now. Like, because we have been here for, what is it, seven days now. We've been here a week. Yeah, I'm ready to sleep for a year, but yeah. that's fine. Um, it's, you know, more cinema. More can't, cinema. Can't, you know. But thanks for listening, and uh, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. Put a coin in the hat, please, sir. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at Judge Movie Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Judge Movie Podcast at gmail.com. Go for it. We've also got reviews coming out at the festival. Uh, so, uh, Ben, yeah, where can people find D movies? If you go onto Vague Visages and find Rotterdam Film Festival 2019, you'll find all my coverage there. Um, and if you just follow me at Pesh Lives, Pesh underscore Lives on Twitter, you'll find links to all my stuff. Nice. Get, get running. Maybe I should what add, should I add my yeah, Twitter what's handle. Yeah, your Twitter handle so oh, people can find you. Oh, here we go. This, this is the preamble of like from text to speech about you how my, to my things really it. work think, yeah, no, yeah it's, it's really really it's a bit painful so my, my handle is at in permafrost because I just watched um, Bill Morrison's uh, Lawson <coughs> City Frozen Time and I was like damn son um, but yeah so in permafrost I-N-P-E-R-M-A-F-R-O-S-T yeah. and if you you've go. got that right then you'll gain a follower or two exactly yeah thank you happy day but uh, yeah thanks for listening and uh Stay. See you in court. <laughs>